Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. While you're turning, I want to encourage you again to come tonight for our commissioning service. This is a a joyous occasion for our church. The Lord has given us many opportunities to serve Him in missions by supporting missionaries, even from within our own body. Uh, but this is the first time we've been able to send a, an actual family of Redeemer uh, to the mission field. And so we're, uh, this is an answer to prayer. And uh, the, the Hirschbergers have been members longer than I've been here. And so to see them develop the Hirschbergers to this point and to send them, they're at 94%. And uh, my uh, hopefully sanctified prediction is that that's going to come soon and they'll be leaving soon. So this is why we're having the commissioning service tonight. So please come back at 6 and we'll be having a not a potluck dinner. We don't, as Presbyterians, have potluck dinners. We'll have a pot providence dinner tonight <laughs> at six or after the service. So please join us for that. Hebrews 12, what a great passage on this day and on such an occasion to consider. Please turn there, Hebrews 12. The first three verses will be our focus. We have spent five weeks studying the famous hall of faith, or probably better put, the hall of God's faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 11. There we see a bridge between all that deep and wonderful doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. And now we come to uh, this bridge of Hebrews 11, reminding us of how God exacts his glory through the lives of broken people given the gift of faith. And now chapter 12, a message directly to you and I, encouraging us to run the race with endurance. Hear God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us pray. Father, there are some who are weary and faint-hearted. There are some who look today for your encouragement in Christ. And Lord, I pray that they would receive just that as they consider your holy word. Lord, I thank you for giving us this, your word. There's so much folly out there that's so popular. Lord, may we cling all the closer to the truth, which is your word. And I pray that we would be changed as a result, and glory would come to you. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is indeed a race, and I think we have to acknowledge as Americans, our idea of a race is usually fast and quick. In fact, when you think of the most popular events in the Olympics, whether it be the Winter Olympics or the Summer Olympics, are those races that are fast and furious and over in a flash. Usually, we don't sit by the TV and watch a two-and-a-half-hour, hour-and-a-half, depending who's running, marathon. They're just not that exciting. We tune in for the end. We like to see who crosses, who's still, you know, limping across the finish line in marathons. But, you know, the reality is the Christian life is a race, and that analogy is given often in the New Testament. Uh, but more so, it is, an ra- it is a race of endurance, not a sprint. It's a marathon. In the language... Uh, Uh, showing us this analogy between a race and the Christian life is always and everywhere present in Paul's writing. In fact, that's why some think that the book of Hebrews is written by Paul because of this analogy to a race. You'll recall in 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize? So run that race that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, Paul uses the term again when he writes to the Galatians, saying, you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. He says again to the Philippians, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And then he writes to Timothy just before his death, or at least the last time he would write or pen scripture, I have fought the good fight, Paul says, I have finished the race. Now, I don't personally think Paul wrote Hebrews. Rather, I think that Paul uh, and the author of Hebrews and other portions are capturing a very popular, well-known analogy. People knew what races were. They were celebrated in various towns and cities. And so this analogy is captured by the biblical writers, and it gives us a great way of thinking about the Christian life, that it is, a, it is an endur- endurance race. Running the race with endurance is to be our endeavor as men, women, and children who have been bought the blood of Christ. Uh, this great passage of Scripture is a further call to commitment. These verses summarize the goal of the book of Hebrews, that all followers of Christ would pursue maturity in Christ. You know, a running race requires preparation, training, a knowledge of the course, encouragement, support, perseverance when the cramps start from within, or when the obstacles like weather and other things in the road happen from without. Finishing the course is the goal in this race we have been given. And I want you to know from the beginning that I see myself as a fellow runner with you, like a player coach. I'm not standing on the sideline telling you all to run. I'm with you. We're together in this, running this race. And I would like to submit to you that the overarching theme, the thrust here, is that we are to make our life's ambition. There's no way for me to even overstate this. To make our life's ambition the active pursuit of spiritual maturity in Christ. That's your life's ambition. What's the the answer to life? What's the purpose of life? The active pursuit of maturity in Christ. That's what these verses will tell us and encourage us in. In fact, what we learn first in the very beginning of this uh, verse 1 is that we can gain courage from the fruit of faith shown in the lives of our predecessors. We spent five weeks studying the great hall of faith as it is referred to. And verse 1 grabs back into that history, into that survey, and uses it as a way to strengthen us in our running of the race. Verse 1 says, therefore, in light of what I've just said in chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Chapter 11 serves as a bridge where the first ten chapters lay out the reality of Jesus to us. That Jesus is superior to even the angels. He's superior to to the Mosaic law code. He is superior to the priesthood, the high priesthood, to Moses himself, the high priest. He gives us better rest. He gives us a better covenant. Everything about Jesus is better. It's all about Christ, the preeminence of Jesus, captured in the first ten chapters of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 is reminding us that broken, battered people, because of what Christ has done, are given the gift of faith, and they can do great things even despite themselves. And he delineates and shows, look, you know regular people that did these things. This is Christ's superiority. This is the reality of Christ's work in the world as God gives the, gives the gift of faith. And Jesus confirms that gift in them. They live it. They finish the course. They run the race. So you can too. That's the point now, chapter 12. 
first three verses introduces this wonderful exhortation and encouragement to us. Now look at the phrase for a moment that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I've heard and read many different interpretations of this. One that I found very interesting is the idea that, much like a marathon, a gallery develops or uh, starts to gather around the finish line people that have already finished the race. They finish the race and they turn and they watch and see the rest who are coming. And some have said that this is really what's happening, that there's a cloud of witnesses. They're cheering us on as we run the race. They finished it. Now we're surrounded by them as we enter towards the finish line, and they are cheering us. And I think that's a great picture. It's certainly inspiring. But technically, I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think if we look closely, we can see this is a reference to the witness that the lives of those who have been listed the witness to their lives and all the fruit that their lives bore. That's the witness that we're talking about. To be technical, uh, what I think this is referring to is the cloud of witnesses that have just been referred to in chapter 11. Most specifically, we're talking about people who God has worked amazingly through, and they have helped by their witness and their testimony, regular people living lives of faith, able to complete the course, and that bears witness to us today. This is a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of something we can gain great strength from. You know, I think of those fabled places rich in sports tradition. Uh, It refers, uh, if you think of uh, the University of Notre Dame, I'm not a fan, nor will I probably ever be really a fan. It is definitely one of the most celebrated football traditions because of their uh, many championships and successful seasons and the great players who've come through that university. You know, when a player today puts on a a uniform for Notre Dame, not only does it not have their last name on it, uh, they put their uniform on and they recognize that they are part of a steeped tradition. They are not the first ones to put that uniform on. They're not even the best one that ever put the uniform on. They put it on and they are now connected with a larger, long heritage. So when they go out, they represent that heritage, not just themselves. This is a wonderful connection. They are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of those who had gone before them. This is a wonderful picture to us, I believe, of the, the, the faith that we are living because we're not the first to walk in, these, in, in this path or run in this race. I'm not the first person. You're not the first person to weather the storms of temptation that affront you on a regular basis. I'm not the first person, nor are you the first person, to wrestle with doubts or questions. I'm not the first person to feel weary and faint. I wonder if I could finish. I'm not the first person to see God's hand of redeeming and sustaining grace. I'm not the first person to have a passion for God's glory in this world, nor are you. We are not alone, my brothers and sisters. This time and place is not the be-all, end-all in church history. It's probably not even one of the better highlights of church history. We're part of a much, much bigger movement of God. And that gives me great strength today, even down to the daily trials that I, can, I am confronted with. We are not alone. In this race we are in, We gain courage from the fruit of faith shown in the lives of our predecessors. Their lives, the fruit of God's faith, bears witness to us. And we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You know, one of the great witnesses to me personally as a minister of the gospel, but I think all of us can gain strength from this, happened during the time of the Reformation when Martin Luther, that great champion of the word of God, did something we may take for granted today. But he stood against the tide of erroneous teaching and said 
that the word of God must be our locus of authority. What he did was to take his life into his own hands. But he believed with all his heart that what was going on in the organized church of the day was to take away from the glory of Christ. Uh, and really what he did in all of his writings, I mean, some are accented, the exposés that he did about the, the hellacious practice of selling the forgiveness of sins. Yes, he confronted those things, but you know that many of the books that he wrote that the church wanted condemned were actually just expositions of scripture. And they were opposed to the idea that he would give expositions of scripture to the common person so they could understand God's word. Yet he was willing to die for that reality, that you would have the word of God in your hands to read and study and to check what I'm saying with and recognize the authority comes from God in his revealed word. And when I think of him, I don't know if we'll see a day like that again, but I pray that if we do, that I would have the strength, that you would have the strength to act as he did. I draw strength off from his example and what he did when the Roman Catholic Church called him and joined together in this kind of unholy alliance with the civil magistrate to persecute him and those who taught the word of God, the, the prosecutor for Rome and the government asked Luther, will you recant these writings? And Luther responded, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. That is a powerful moment in the history of the church that I gained strength from. And as a rather humorous side story, when the movie came out that recounted this, this exact scene, about nine of us from Redeemer were at the movie. There wasn't a lot of us in the theater. We were sitting in the middle of the theater, and when Luther said, here I stand, I could do no other, like a bunch of schoolboys watching Rocky, yeah, is what we said. <laughs> because it's powerful what happened then in 1521 at the Diet of Worms. It's not everything uh, that strengthens my life, but it's certainly part of what God has done in the past through our predecessors to give me strength today. You know, something else comes very, uh, becomes very clear in this passage, verse Verse 1, we're to do two things. We're to lay aside two things, not just one. It says in verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Two things we are to lay aside. Please notice them. The first is weight. The second is sin. Weight is not necessarily sinful. It's not that the things themselves or the activities or the thoughts themselves are wrong, but they're weighing us down. They're holding us back. But then there are also those things that cling closely, sins, outright violations of God's command. These two things we are to assess, to consider, to evaluate, and lay them aside so we can run. First one, eliminate things that hinder spiritual progress. Let us also lay aside every weight. Now, in antiquity, when a runner was about to compete in a race, he or she would remove all their outer garments, their belts, straps, their sandals, anything that would weigh them down in the race. They ran with very little on. And this is for the point of when they get halfway through the race, that they can persevere, they can endure, because they don't have extra weight keeping them down. There's nothing wrong with the clothes they're wearing, nothing wrong about it, except that if they wear it, it's going to weigh them down. So they had to evaluate, what am I wearing that I just don't need, so that I can run this race with endurance? Lay aside those things that weigh us down, the text encourages us. Imagine for a moment several of us lining up for a race. We come to the starting line. Each of us is ready to run. And I'm confident if I told you we're going to have a race and some of you would agree that we would race, most of you would know to come with some kind of running shoes on, some kind of running 
uh, some kind of running clothes. You'd either have shorts or sweatpants and a shirt. You'd be ready to run. But imagine one of the brothers comes, or one of the sisters for that matter, and they're wearing a big old pair of baggy jeans. And they're wearing flip-flops on, uh, on top of that. And then they're also wearing a leather jacket. And with a leather jacket, they're wearing a backpack with rocks in the back that they collected on the way. Now, they are serious about running the race. They don't recognize that they've misunderstood what it takes to run this race. They're genuine. They come to the line. We all stand in the line. What will we say to this brother or this sister? Are you serious? Do you really think you're going to get far with this? Now, you may think you're in good shape and that you can get off the starting line faster than me, and that may be true. But I promise you, if you keep running with all that on, you're going to fall. You're going to falter. You're going to meander. You're going to stop. You can't wear all that. You've got to get rid of that weight. There's nothing wrong with the backpack, nothing wrong with the rocks, nothing necessarily wrong with the flip-flops. But they're not proper attire for racing. They're weight. They're things that are going to drag you down. Listen, I'm not into making lists of do's and don'ts. You know I, I'm not about that. I want to key on what the Word of God says, not what I come up with as a standard for you personally. At the same time, I've got to be honest to you as a shepherd that we're weighing ourselves down, brothers and sisters, with a lot of extra stuff that doesn't need to be there, and we're not running the race well because of it. And I don't know what it is for you. I know where my struggles are, and I know what my problems are. I understand that I get too busy. I've got to stop saying yes to everything. I understand that I can fall prey to wondering about, well, if your kid's in those two activities, is mine missing out because they're not in that one? Those are weights. There's nothing wrong with the activity, but there's something wrong about worshiping it. They weigh us down. I want you to consider for yourself what things. Evaluate what you need to lay aside. How bad do you really want to run this race? Because if you really want to run it badly, you'll drop the backpack with the rocks in it. Maybe you don't know you got it on your back. Let someone help you tell you you do. Or look and really honestly assess, how could this be helping me? If the pursuit of your career is Lord instead of Jesus, lay it aside. If time on the internet or playing computer games are hindering your spiritual progress by robbing time and affections or our thoughts from Christ, lay them aside. If your pursuit of material wealth is robbing your loyalty to Christ, lay it aside. If your hobby is hindering your spiritual progress, lay it aside as much as is necessary so that Christ may have his proper place in your life and that you can run the race with endurance, not be weighed down as you get down the course. Here's a tough one. If your children have become the center of your home instead of Christ, lay that aside. If you're saying to yourself right now, I can only do thus and so if it's all right with my child's schedule, lay it aside. Christ is to be the center of our homes, not our children, not each other, Christ. Be honest. Whatever is weighing you down in your progress towards spiritual maturity, lay it aside. Life is too short to run around with jeans on, flip-flops, and a backpack full of rocks. Are you serious? Are you going to race in that? Let's say that to one another more. Not judging, simply saying, maybe there's too much weight, brother. Maybe you're carrying too much weight, sister. Lay it aside. Lay aside every weight that hinders. But even more urgently, the text says, and with more clarity in the the second part of the verse, don't let sin entangle your spiritual growth by saying, and sin, lay aside sin, which clings so closely. Some versions say, lay aside the sin which so easily entangles. And it seems to be pinpointing a particular pet sin that might be keeping you or entangling you. Try to run through a, a series of vines and you can't. You keep getting entangled. Lay it aside, whatever it is. You know, it really doesn't matter how this passage stirs you or this time that I'm preaching uh, tweaks your spirit a bit if you refuse to rid yourself of the provisions that you're making for sin. 
You'll never finish the race on that basis. Feeling inspired by the word of God preached can quickly fade if you refuse to stop visiting that site on the internet. If overeating is your sin, don't leave two gallons of haagen in your freezer. If habitual spending is entangling you, get rid of the credit card. Stop making a trip to the mall when you want to relieve distress or stress. You'll come to a dead stop in the race if you continue to rely on food, alcohol, prescription drugs, illicit relationships. Your sufficiency must be in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and it will entangle you and you will not run. You'll not run well if you can run at all with these things continually hanging on. Hebrews 12.1 commands us to lay aside sin that we might run, not to make our lives miserable, because the Lord, but because the Lord wants you to run freely and run with endurance in the joy that comes from that running. What is it for you? Lying, gossip, strife, malice? Lay it aside. Sexual temptation, manipulation, people, pride, what is it? God's gift of faith. By God's gift of faith, lay it aside. You know, the scripture says, flee youthful lusts. It doesn't say stand around and negotiate with youthful lusts. It says run from them. Run from them. God knows more about you than you do. And he recognizes the best advice is to run from it. Don't let sin entangle your spiritual growth by letting sin cling closely. Notice the last part of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance literally means the act or quality or power of withstanding hardship or stress. It's the state or fact of persevering. So as you run, you get stronger. The further you run, the stronger you get. And the beauty is the longer you run, the obstacles you saw at the beginning, the weights you put off or the sins you were able to avoid or put off, those things, when they come up again, because they do come up again, brothers and sisters, you see it now, say, I'm not running to that side of the track. I'm going to keep going this way. And you've been through it, and you know, you've seen it before. And you have an ability to help those who are further down starting their course by telling them what lies ahead. And so we run with endurance, and the way we run with endurance is to keep running the race that is set before us. And note that we are to run. It doesn't say meander with endurance, the race that is set before us. We are to run. There is a definite course before us. Christ Jesus is the one we are pursuing. The book of Hebrews is a fundamental call to commitment. Make it your life's ambition to actively pursue maturity in Christ. That's the set course. That's where we're running to. We're running to Jesus. Just picture Jesus at the end of the race, and you're running to him. The beauty is Jesus walks us to himself even as we come to him finally. Come to him. Further, as we look at this text in the verse 2 and verse 3, be relentless in your pursuit of the goal with endurance and focus. Be relentless. Let nothing stop you. Keep going after it. With the same passion that you apply to that thing that you love so much, apply it to your pursuit of the goal with endurance and focus. Look to Jesus. Look at verse 12, or 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Then verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners. So be relentless in your pursuit. How? Look to Christ. Consider him in everything that you do. For that person trying to run the race with all the clothes on, all the things weighing him or her down, after taking off that bulky, heavy stuff, we're not just to stand there, we're to put on something else. So we take off those things which beset us, which entangle us, which hinder us, and we put on things that help us run. Put on a good pair of running shoes. Wear the right clothes when you're running. 
Put on. So take off, yes, but put on. And verse 2 and verse 3 is about what to put on. Look to Christ. Christ. Know Christ. Learn of his sacrifices. Learn of his teaching. Study his teaching. Learn of his example, of his service. All the things that Christ does and has done. Study Christ's example. This is the way, this is the lifelong pursuit that we are on that helps us to relentlessly pursue the goal. Some translations translate verse 2 where it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as the author and finisher of our faith. If there was any doubt that faith is a gift, please note who the Lord of our faith is, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith. He's the one who brings it, and he's the one who finishes it and perfects it. And with that knowledge, we can run. And you only know that by studying Jesus, studying Christ, studying your Savior, sitting at his feet, spending time in his revelation, which is his word. And Jesus isn't someone we just come up with in our imagination. He's clearly delineated for us. The history of him and his presence are all recorded for us in the scripture. In fact, one of the great revelations of studying the word is that all 66 books come under this one heading, that's Christ. And so I can now look at a a passage in the book of Leviticus and recognize that all that is written there is ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So how do I get to know Christ better? How do I study Christ's example more? Study the whole of God's revelation to us. Study Christ's example of endurance and focus. That's one of the things that helps us to be relentless in our pursuit of the goal, that helps us to live out our ambition to actively pursue maturity in Christ. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know, not just the fact of what he has done in his example is important. It's also that what he has done in history has purchased for us a new nature. It's not just that we look back at his, his example and say, boy, that gives me, I'm encouraged because I see what Jesus did. It's more than that, brothers and sisters. It's that what he did purchased you new life. And the fact that you can even hear and comprehend what I'm saying is because of the Holy Spirit, which was given to you because of what Jesus did on the cross. So there's a present reality about Christ's work in your life, not just his example. Anyone could say, look at the example of Jesus, what he did. But only a Christian can say, the life I now live is lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's a present reality about Christ's example lived out in us by his will. So we take off those things that hinder, but we put on that which helps us run the race. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Also in this passage, very clearly, is a warning. Be careful not to resent trials in the course of your race running. They serve a vital purpose. Be careful not to resent them. I'm not saying jump up and down happily when you're in them. I'm saying don't resent them because nothing comes to us that is not from the hand of God. Second part of verse 2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, standing up to the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. He ran the course and understood his purpose. And as he went forward, it was with joy that he could withstand trials because he knew the purpose would be fulfilled in him, that he would fulfill God's plan for him. And so it was with joy that he undertook various trials. That's why James can say to the believer, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Because you know that God is sovereign, and he loves you and has adopted you as a son or daughter, and that nothing that happens to you is by happenstance or mistake. And so you can be joyful in whatever it is that you have happening to you right now, 
It's not sinful or unchristian to, to have uh, this affront us and be wondering or asking questions, but it is to question God, to say, you don't know what you're doing, God. He says, count it all joy, for joy was set before him, and he endured the cross. This is part of our enduring, endurance building. You know, running uphill, you don't want to run a whole race uphill, but the parts that go uphill will certainly help you in those times when you're going downhill or you're going level. God has his sovereign, perfect purpose, even with trials. They serve a vital purpose. Packer says it wonderfully when he writes, when we walk along a clear road feeling fine and someone takes our arm to help us, likely we would impatiently shake them off. But when we are caught in rough country in the dark, with a storm brewing and our strength spent, and someone then takes our arm to help us, we would thankfully lean on him. And God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing, so that we may learn to lean on him thankfully. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, to trust in himself. To, in the classic, spiritual, uh, classic scriptural phrase, for the secret of a godly man's life, to wait upon the Lord. There's something about this running that also demands waiting upon the Lord. Be careful not to resent the trials as you run this race. They do serve a vital purpose. Finally, the text tells us to draw strength from our walk with Christ now. It's not just about what he has done, not what he's done for us positionally on the cross. Those are great, great and wonderful things. It's not just a knowledge of the trials being part of a purpose to build us. But there's an ongoing Walk with Jesus that you are part of now. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's in the present tense, brothers and sisters. Walking with Jesus now, daily, talking with him, spending time with him privately, spending time with him as a family, spending time with him in our fellowship as a church. Jesus is alive now, and he is with us. He is our Lord. This is, this is just as real as the friend sitting next to you. Jesus gives us strength now as we run. On the one hand, we're running towards him at the finish line. On the other hand, he carries us to the finish line. This is the beautiful picture of our loving God in Christ bringing us home for his glory. Walk with the resurrected Christ daily. Spend time in his word and prayer Spend time with his people and tell anyone you can possibly tell about him. Brothers and sisters, probably one of the better pictures of the kind of race we are in is one that actually is part of the Olympic history. It's the race that concerns the torch that we have become so familiar with that races across the country with various people carrying the torch. Well, there was such a race in ancient times, one that didn't get as much uh, popular attention. It was unique. And in this race, I think it's more like the race we are running. The winner was not the runner who finished first. It was the runner who finished with his torch still lit. Can you imagine how anticlimactic it would be when they, the guy gets up to light it and the thing goes out on his way up? Because we don't care who finishes first. It's the fact that after that long trek, that torch, that much-traveled torch, still has fire burning in it. That's the point of the race you're on. You're not racing against your neighbor. You're not looking to see who finished first, who runs faster, who's still behind you. You've got a torch that God's given you, and you're carrying it. And my prayer for you, brothers and sisters, is that every one of you would cross that finish line with your torch still lit for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we 
have a tendency to grow weary and faint-hearted. We're tired or we think we've got to quit. Lord Jesus, carry us. Help us to know the power that is in us. The power that raised you from the dead is also at work within us. Lord, that we might consider the great cloud of witnesses that surround us, that we would press on to the high calling that we have been given, that we would stay the course, that endurance would be built in your people, perseverance would show forth, and other people would join this race called the Christian life. Lord, it's a race that will be won because of your work in us and for your glory. I pray for the person who is discouraged today that they would recognize that there may be a need to lay aside those weights, to lay aside that sin that so closely clings. Lord, break them free from the bondage of sin that is holding them back in the race right now by the power of Christ. And I pray that they would join in that race with with fierceness and zealousness and that we as a body would look around for this purpose, to see who is languishing, to see who it is that we can help up with a renewed promise of the gospel of Christ, that your church would run victoriously with its torch lit for the testimony and glory of King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.